Support for Georgia College Connections comes from Georgia College, Georgia's public liberal arts university, providing the experience students would expect from a private college with the affordability of a public university. For more information, gcsu.edu. Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. In today's edition of Georgia College Connections, we talk with Steve Wise, the president of the Non-Human Rights Project, a civil rights organization working to achieve legal rights for members of species other than human beings. According to the organization's website, nonhumanrightsproject.org, the mission of the Non-Human Rights Project is to change the legal status of appropriate non-human animals from mere things which lack the capacity to possess any legal rights to persons who possess such fundamental rights as bodily integrity and bodily liberty. Steve Wise, welcome to Georgia College Connections. Thank you for having me. The pleasure is mine. I was quoting off of the website earlier, and I want to do so again just for our first question. Your website states, The way our law currently categorizes non-human animals is wrong. It's time for that to change. Can you explain how we currently treat non-humans and talk about the changes you would like to see put into place? Yes. Well, for hundreds and hundreds of years, there's been what I call this great legal wall that separates all legal things from all legal persons. Now, a legal thing is an entity that the law does not recognize as having any capacity for any legal right at all. A legal person has the capacity for one right or one right or an infinite number of rights. And... In 2016, all of the non-human animals are on the thing side of the wall, and all of all human beings are on the person side of the wall. Now, the interplay between things and persons, and as you go back and forth through the through the wall or across the wall, is dynamic. So, in 2016, it's that way: non-human animals are things, humans are persons. But if you had looked at that 200 years ago, you would have seen on the things side of the wall, you would have seen uh, human slaves. You would have seen women for many circumstances, children, the mentally ill. And indeed, a lot of the civil rights work over the last centuries has been to punch a hole through that wall and bring through those people, women, children, slaves, and bring them to the person side of the wall. So in 2016 now, all the non-human animals, whether you're a firefly or whether you're a chimpanzee or a whale or an elephant, you're all on the thing side of the wall. Now, a thing is understood not to have the capacity for rights, but it's also understood to exist in law for the use of persons. And that means that persons can do almost anything that they want to things. Things can't do anything at all. And indeed, they're invisible to the civil law. And the Non-Human Rights Project believes that, that that wall, as it is now, is in an arbitrary place. That there are many non-human animals who should not be things they ought to be persons and have at least some kinds of fundamental rights that protect their most fundamental interests so that we can't just kill them if we want, we can't assault them if we want, we can't imprison them and capture them if we want. So that's what the Non-Human Rights Project is doing, initially beginning to open a, a hole in that wall and begin putting animals like chimpanzees or orcas or elephants you know, through that onto the person side of the wall. 
And as you talk about this arbitrary wall between persons and things, you said that there's been an evolution in our thought on where that wall should stand. How have we evolved to this point right now in our thinking about where this arbitrary wall should be? It took me a long time to understand who is a thing, who's a person, how it, it evolved. Well, first of all, how rights evolved, because we didn't always have rights. How did humans get rights? Which humans got rights? Which humans did not get rights? Why no non-human has rights? And, and in fact, what Non-Human Rights Project does is try to understand why the judges think human beings ought to have rights. What sort of values and principles do judges hold? And so it seemed to us that at a minimum, they valued ideas of liberty and equality. And so we make our arguments and argue that as a matter of liberty and equality, certain non-human animals right now, like chimpanzees, ought to have certain rights. And we rely upon the evolving science of cognition. And so when non-human animals first were seen as being things, they were also seen as not being conscious not being able to really have any sort of a mind at all. And modern science, especially in the last 50 or 60 years, has shown that many non-human animals has the, have these extraordinarily cognitively complex minds. And so you might end up having a human being, say, who's in a permanent coma, who doesn't you know, feel anything, is not sentient, is not conscious, and never will be, yet they have an, a, this whole panoply of rights. Well, on the other hand, you might have an elephant, say, or a chimpanzee, who is this incredibly cognitively complex being, you know, who, you know who's conscious, who's self-conscious, who has a theory of mind, who understands that there are other minds out there, you know, have very complicated social relationships, who are autonomous beings, who can understand what choices they have in the world and how they want to live, and they they can make choices. And so we we say that sort of a situation violates fundamental ideas of equality, and it also violates fundamental ideas of liberty as well, because an autonomous being, a being who can make choices, ought to be able to make them. As I did a little bit of research uh, before our interview, on the website, you talk about trying to delineate between human rights and battling a, a perception that your organization is, is seeking to imbue non-humans with human rights. Can you delineate between what you are seeking for non-humans versus what people may be perceiving that you are asking for? Certainly. Many people think that when when we argue, say, that, that a chimpanzee ought to have the right uh, not to be imprisoned, uh, that we're seeking some kind of a human right for them. And we're saying, no, human rights are for human beings. We're seeking a kind of a chimpanzee right for a chimpanzee. So a fundamental human right, for example, would, would protect a fundamental human interest. A fundamental chimpanzee right protects a fundamental chimpanzee interest. A fundamental orca right would protect a fundamental orca interest. Or a fundamental elephant right protects a fundamental elephant interest. And so many times, especially the rights that we are beginning with, they're the same for a chimpanzee as for a human being. So we're saying you should not be able to arbitrarily imprison a chimpanzee, they ought to have a fundamental right not to. But we're not asking for the human right, we're asking for the chimpanzee right. And eventually, either because we'll be looking at other kinds of fundamental interests that, say, a chimpanzee might have, or other kinds of non-human animals, we'll be looking to protect fundamental interests of non-human animals that human beings may not have. 
And there it'll be more clearly seen that we're not seeking a human right for them. We're seeking, say, a chimpanzee right for a chimpanzee. Well, we're going to take a short break right now, but if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections, and we're talking with Steve Wise, the president of the Non-Human Rights Project, on the occasion of his lecture or panel discussion at Georgia College. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. We're talking about the Non-Human Rights Project with its president and founder, Stephen Weiss, on Georgia College Connections. In that last segment, we kind of talked a little bit about some of the rights that the Non-Human Rights Project is seeking for. And I think that that kind of brings us into the conversation about Midway. And I wanted to start off this segment by asking you about how you came to be involved in this project and kind of the evolution of the project itself. It's been quite some time. I actually read a book by a philosopher named Peter Singer in 1980, now 35 years ago, when I was a young lawyer, that really influenced me. And I had not realized how we treated non-human animals, how many of them there were that we were abusing, and also how unprotected they were. There weren't any lawyers or other people who were really helping them. And so I decided that I could probably do my best work by representing their interests. And so I began to do that in 1980. In 1981, I became aware of, of a few other lawyers in the U.S. who are also doing the same thing. And we came together to form an organization called Attorneys for Animal Rights at that time in 1981, it eventually became the Animal Legal Defense Fund, which is still exists and is continues to grow, even though I, I'm not involved with it anymore. And so I became involved with it, though, and became the president of it. And we used to uh, sit around and try to figure out how, as lawyers, we'd be able to deal with the terrible things that were being done to non-human animals that we saw all around us, and that we still do today. And by 1985... I realized that the major problem was that they were indeed things, that they were invisible to civil law, that they didn't have the capacity for rights. And so they were essentially slaves. They were actually quite an, an analogous situation to the way human slaves once were in the United States and elsewhere. It's very hard to protect someone's fundamental interests when they are invisible to civil law. And so I thought that the way to go would be to try to lay the foundation for breaking through this wall. And in 1985, the first time that I began to think about this wall or envision it and try to have some non-human animals that at least be characterized as legal persons who have the capacity for rights. So that was 1985, 31 years ago. And at that time, I looked around, I saw it was really not thought about. There were very few lawyers. There weren't any law schools who taught anything about it. 
There were no books. There weren't any, any articles. And it was going to take a long time. So at that time, I thought that it would take till about 2015. I figured it would take 30 years before I and others I was able to attract would be ready to file these kinds of lawsuits. And we we're hoping the world would have evolved to the point where we could file them and have some kind of a reasonable chance of winning. So what had to be done was we had to first introduce the legal profession to it. So in 1990, I began to teach at law schools, and I've now probably taught at six or seven of them, including Harvard Law School in 2000, which was a really large advance for us. And then, we, and then I and others began to write articles, and we began to write books, and we began to talk to a generation of younger lawyers who, who, are, who were coming up and are still coming up. And the legal profession began to get some kind of a better understanding of what we were doing. And also, we had to think of what sort of legal theories we might be able to use. And, and for that, I eventually went back to looking at especially one case, a very famous slave case that was decided in 1772 called Somerset versus Stewart, where you had an African boy who was kidnapped from West Africa, brought to Virginia at age eight, and eventually his master, within 20 years later, brought him to London, where he escaped, and then he was recaptured, and then there was a huge confrontation in the Court of King's Bench in London in front of a, of a great judge named Lord Mansfield. The question of whether the common law would allow human slavery. And they filed a writ of habeas corpus, which means you have the body. It's called the great writ. It's a fundamental legal writ that protects any person. And I don't mean person in a biological way. I mean person in the legal way of an entity who has the capacity for rights. It, and so it will protect or allow anyone to go in and file a lawsuit on behalf of some other person who's being kidnapped, held against her will. And it was, it was filed under the common law, which is the law that judges make while in the, they're in the process of deciding cases. And that case ended after seven months with the uh, court freeing the slave, James Somerset, and saying that, the, that slavery was so odious that the common law w would not support it. And I saw that as a way of a cause of action, a key, a way of going in and bringing the same kind of issues on behalf of other persons. It turned out in 1879, there was also a Native American in, in the West who also brought a common law writ of habeas corpus against General Crook. His name was Standing Bear. It's called Crook versus Standing Bear, where he was being imprisoned by an army general. He brought a common law writ of habeas corpus, and they had an argument over whether a Native American was a person who could bring a common law writ of habeas corpus because only persons could. And that judge did say, in spite of what the United States was arguing, that a Native American was a person who could bring a common law writ of habeas corpus. And so I looked at those two cases and said, look, these are two cases in which someone who was a thing or not a person used the common law and used a writ of habeas corpus to go in without having to have a civil war the way we had to do it in the U.S., was able to to turn that thing into a person who had the capacity for rights. And so we actually adopted the idea of a common law writ of habeas corpus as being the cause of action that we would use on behalf of non-human animals who are things. And so we, we've actually been doing that. Oh my, by 2008 or 2007, I had been working on this in teaching, writing articles, writing books, and also the world had begun to evolve. So by 2007, I sent out a bunch of emails to people saying, I've now been thinking and writing about this for 22 years, and now I'm ready to begin filing 
suits. And so I really ramped up an organization then called the Center for the Expansion of Fundamental Rights, now called the Non-Human Rights Project, in which we began to prepare the cases. And it took us six years of really hard work. And at one point, I was supervising 80 people around the country working on various issues. And in, at the end of 2013, the Non-Human Rights Project filed a series of common law writs of habeas corpus on behalf of chimpanzees who are being imprisoned in the state of New York. And we're still litigating those. And it's really the, the first step in which we spent all these years developing these theories, trying to figure out how we might win. And now we're bringing them in front of judges and trying to see you know, how, how we deal with them, how they deal with us, how we can fix it if they don't like it, and how we might be able to get chimpanzees freed. Our next suit's probably going to be on on behalf of elephants in, in another state. And then we are just starting to work with all kinds of non-human animals where there are scientists who have done an extraordinary amount of work with them and understand what they're, how cognitively complex they are. So we bring in affidavits of the greatest ape cognition scientists in the world from Jane Goodall, who's actually a member of my board, uh, you know, on down. We go to the greatest scientists who spend their lives studying elephants, for example. They file affidavits for us. And when we move on to other animals, whether it's orcas or gorillas or parrots or whoever we move on to, we begin the same way. We go to the world's experts on them, people who have spent 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years studying them. We ask, can you show us that they are incredibly cognitively complex, even autonomous beings? And if you can, will you cooperate with right affidavits? They do, and then we start filing lawsuits. Well, we're going to take another opportunity for a short break right now. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Steve Wise. He's the president of the Non-Human Rights Project, a civil rights organization working to achieve legal rights for members of species other than human beings. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections and WRGC 88.3 FM. I'm your host, Daniel McDonald, and today we're talking about rights for non-humans. We're here with the president of the Non-Human Rights Project, Steve Wise. Our last segment, you were talking about some of the great amount of research that's gone into the Non-Human Rights Project, and you were talking about going back and looking at common law dating back to the 18th century. And I wanted to ask, have you seen parallels in 
public sentiment on this issue as we've looked at slavery, Native Americans or other indigenous peoples, and seen parallels to the evolution that you may or may not be seeing in people's consideration of non-humans? It is startling how much you see it. I actually wrote a book called Though the Heavens May Fall, which told the story of the Somerset case. And while I kept my own opinions out of there, and in fact, the only time that I come into the book is really the last sentence in which I say that no humans are slaves anymore, but that there are still other slaves in the world. Other than that, I just write as a historian. And the arguments against black slaves moving from being things to persons are extraordinarily analogous to the arguments that people make against me because they're the standard arguments that the entities who have the power make to stop those who are powerless from from sharing any of that power whatsoever. It was very, very powerful with respect to slaves. Of course, non-human animals are not seeking power. They are mostly seeking to be, or at least we're seeking for them to be left alone, not imprisoned or killed. But we still use them, we exploit them, and the arguments that people make in favor of that are quite similar to the arguments that people make when they are in favor of exploiting anyone or anything. And so one of the things we did watch, and we indeed base a lot of our work on the abolitionist movement, showing and watch how the perceptions of slaves, human slaves, you know, changed. What were the arguments? And of course, you have different ways of ending thinghood, in, in, even in human beings in, in England. You ended it through a judicial case. In the United States, it was ended through a civil war. We prefer to choose the courtroom. And so that that's what we, we model our work on the abolitionists, both in England and in the U.S. afterwards, you know, who brought those sorts of cases. And even into the end of the, of the 19th century, where lawyers were bringing suit on behalf of Native Americans as well. The work that we've done uh, has seen an enormous change in public perception. In 1985... I decided I wanted to teach animal rights law, and I was living in Boston at the time, and I sent a letter out to the six law schools there saying I wanted to teach the class. Nobody even bothered to respond. Uh, and I, I didn't know that 15 years later I would actually be teaching at Harvard Law School. That I didn't think that was going to happen. But five years later, 1990, I began to teach at the Vermont Law School. And one of the things that we in the Non-Human Rights Project were looking at was how was the judicial, the legal, and the public perceptions, how were they changing so that they might fertile ground for our ideas? That was really important for us because we weren't interested in going in and losing and not gaining anything at all. We, we either wanted to win or we wanted to win as much as we could and then move on. And we were actually quite pleasantly surprised when we finally filed suit in 2013. The press that we got was overwhelmingly favorable. Every now and then there'd be someone to say we, we were crazy. But I think one thing um, demonstrates this. Uh, on the day that we filed our first cases on December 2nd, 2013, on behalf of a chimpanzee, CNN put together a panel of lawyers. Those lawyers said, when we heard the idea, we thought that they were nuts. We actually read what they filed, and we thought that they made compelling arguments. And we do make compelling arguments. And one of the reasons we make them is that we go into a jurisdiction and try to understand what the fundamental values and principles are of the judges in that jurisdiction. And they're very similar throughout the United States, indeed throughout the West, throughout the English-speaking countries. And we make our arguments based on what judges say they value. We say, well, if you value this, then we have it. So, for example, we are beginning with such 
non-human animals, chimpanzees, because we think that we have plenty of evidence showing that they are autonomous beings. You know, they can choose how they want to live their lives, and then they can live them in that way. One of the reasons we chose the state of New York is that, as our first state is that the courts there are so clear how much they value autonomy. One line of cases that we thought was particularly compelling is a series of cases that began in the 1980s where you would have human beings who would be in the hospital and they would be dying and a hospital would say, unless you take certain kinds of medication or you have blood transfusions or you have surgery, you're going to die. And the human would say, I want to die. And the hospitals would go into court and say, we want permission to override what they're saying and keep them alive. And and, And the court said that their autonomy was so important that even the state's interest in the preservation of their lives did not trump their own autonomy. And what we go into court and say, say to judges is that we're simply accepting what you tell us. If you tell us that autonomy is the supreme value that trumps even the interest in human life, we believe you. And we're just telling you that humans are not the only autonomous beings. Our client is a chimpanzee. She's autonomous too. And we have 150 pages of affidavits, you know, from the greatest chimpanzee cognition experts who have, who have ever lived. And they show you in page after page after page that chimpanzees are autonomous. And so basically what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If you believe that autonomy is a supreme value, they are autonomous. If you think that human autonomy is a supreme value, then we think you're just simply being arbitrary. Right. Now, can you talk a little bit about the cases that you're working on right now? Yes. Uh, we looked throughout the state of New York to find the chimpanzees who were there. The first two chimpanzees we chose to file suit on both died before we could get their cases into court. Once that happened, and this was in September of 2013, we then did everything we could to find out and identify every chimpanzee in the state of New York. And we were able to identify six possible chimpanzees. We then began to see whether they actually existed or, or, or not. Turned out one of them actually didn't exist. Someone who owned a roadside zoo had put in a photograph of, of a chimpanzee amongst the animals that it was exhibiting. And it turned out that it was a monkey that they had or monkeys. They didn't really know the difference between a chimpanzee and a monkey. So we then were able to find one chimpanzee in a, named Tommy, who was in, in a cage in a large warehouse in, in a small, small town in central New York. We found Kiko and Charlie, who were two chimpanzees being kept in a cage in a storefront in Niagara Falls. Charlie would die before we could file suit. And then we found two chimpanzees, Hercules and Leo, who at that time were, I think, were seven years old. And they had been used since they were three years old for really ghastly experiments at Stony Brook University. They were owned, if you, and we, if you can own a chimpanzee, by New Iberia Research Institute in Louisiana. And they had apparently loaned them or, or leased them to Stony Brook on Long Island when the little, these little guys were three years old. And from the time they were three until the time that we saw them when they were seven or eight, they were kept in, in cages. They were in the basement of a computer building. They weren't even outside. They had wires thrust into their muscles. And for those of you who, are, who have ever had to have surgery, you'll understand they were put under general anesthesia about once a month for years. And it, it was a hellish existence for 
So we, and it wasn't even in pursuit of human health. It was just professor of anatomy wanted to use them to try to understand how humans evolved from, uh, from where chimpanzee-like creature walked with a bent leg to humans walk with a straight leg. So we filed then three, three lawsuits, on, one on behalf of Tommy, one on behalf of Kiko, two on behalf of Hercules and Leo. They're still moving their way through the state of New York. Two of them have probably been destroyed in order to have jurisdiction over, a, over anyone, a human or a non-human, in a habeas corpus case, the, the corpus, the body, has to be within that state. Both Hercules and Leo and Tommy were removed without us knowing it in the middle of the night, likely, and Hercules and Leo have been taken back to New Iberian, Louisiana. And we are actually in the middle of a campaign on through change.org and on other ways to have them sent to this spectacular chimpanzee sanctuary called Save the Chimps in South Florida, who's agreed to take them for the rest of their lives and maintain them at a cost of about $2 million. But right now, we're continuing our appeals on behalf of Kiko, trying to establish that Kiko indeed ought to be a person, and Kiko ought to also be able to go to Save the Chimps through a writ of habeas corpus. We've actually been making a lot of progress. Last spring in 2015, we, we took a huge step forward. We're after losing three times on the fourth time, a judge issued the equivalent of a writ of habeas corpus against Stony Brook University and ordered them for the first time in history to come into court and give a legally sufficient reason for detaining, for imprisoning these two chimpanzees. And that was an extraordinary event that led to, you know, an, quite an extraordinary hour and a half legal argument in court a month later. Well, we're going to take another short break right now. But if you're just joining us, you're listening to Georgia College Connections. And we're talking with Steve Wise, the president of the Non-Human Rights Project. Stay tuned for more. And we'll be right back with Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. We're talking with Steve Wise, the president of the Non-Human Rights Project, a civil rights organization working to achieve legal rights for members of species other than human beings. In our final segment, I wanted to address what I think at least looks like from your website as a, as a common criticism. And then as you're working to gain rights for certain autonomous species, Will your efforts expand to petition society for rights for other species? Or in other words, where does this end? Well, as a common law lawyer, I have to say the answer is, if you ask me that with respect to anything, I don't know where anything ends. I have no idea. You know, the, the essence of the common law, the, the law that judges make as they de decide cases, is that it's supposed to be flexible. It's supposed to evolve in light of changing experience, of changing mores, of changing scientific discoveries. And we rely upon that. We argue changing mores. We argue changing experience, especially we argue changing scientific discoveries. So 
the important thing to break through that wall and have judges begin looking at non-human animals, the, the arguments for the at least certain kinds of fundamental rights for certain kinds of non-human animals, begin to look at them, not what they do now, which is automatically say, well, they're a thing. They don't have the capacity for any rights at all. We want them to make a more realistic, a more nuanced, a more just way of looking at them and in a less arbitrary way as we bring and others will bring non-human animals in front of them, species, either different species of a similar right or uh, same species, you know, we're extending their rights to look at them and, and say, we need to make not a biological decision because that's not what a person is not a biological concept. Who is a person is an issue that judges make as a matter of public policy, as a matter of moral principle. Who is a person? In other words, who is visible to our judicial system? Who ought to count? Who's entitled to justice? And that is a decision that the people ultimately make, that the legislatures make, that the judges make. And legislatures and people to ignore the fact that there is this wall that is artificially there. And again, it, it's if you take a snapshot of 2016, it just so happens to have all animals on one part and all non and all humans on the other side. But by the way, there are already many entities who are not humans, who are persons, especially since the Citizens United case. Most people realize now that corporations are persons with First Amendment rights. Ships are persons. The state of Georgia is a person. But we, we also point out the fact to our judges of other English-speaking common law countries. India, there was a, a case where a Hindu idol was a person, where a mosque was a person, where the holy books of the Sikh religion is a person. And in New Zealand, in 2012, there was a treaty between the indigenous peoples of New Zealand and the Crown in which it was agreed that a certain river was a person who owned its own bed. So it's really clear that being human and being a person are not the same thing. Look at the common law with respect to fetuses, for example. Courts almost uniformly say that fetuses are human beings, but there's a real split, in, even in the common law, as to whether they're, should they have rights or, or should they not. In every state, fetuses have some rights. and In most states, they don't have many rights. And under the 14th Amendment, with respect to the mother, they don't have any rights at all. They, they are, are not persons. But what's happening is that the court is not making a, in, in deciding personhood versus thinghood, is not making a biological decision. They're making a decision of public policy and morality. And that's what we're asking, that judges begin to look at the evidence, begin to weigh the moral arguments, begin to look at the experience, the evolution of the way people think and what they think is, is just, and make their decisions based on that, not by automatically, reflexively saying, Non-human animals are things, so I don't, I don't even want to hear the argument. We've been there. We've been there with slaves. We've been there with women. We've been there with children. We've been there with Native Americans. We've been there. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't work. It's unjust. Uh, instead, of, instead of doing something terrible, continuing to do something terrible to non-human animals for the next 100 years, then later on we'll be issuing statements of apology to the animal kingdom. Why don't we realize that we're doing terrible things right now and that we have the evidence right now to argue that at least some of them ought to have fundamental rights to be left alone. As you're here at the Georgia College campus, you're speaking to as a part of a panel. I understand that you also you travel the country, travel the world even, yes. um, on behalf of the Non-Human Rights Project. Yes. When you're talking to your audiences, what do you hope that they take away from the conversation? 
Well, I, I want them to think about what I've just been saying, that just because something has always been that way doesn't mean it always will. Those young people, for, for example, who flocked to the candidacy of Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders is saying just because things are this way doesn't mean they have to be this way. They can change. And that's what we say. Just because things are this way doesn't mean they're right. Doesn't mean they have to be this way. It's just that's how they are, and especially when you're a young person. Uh, and when you're 18, when, when you're 20, it's really easy to think that just because you've always grown up and things have been a certain way, that they always have to be that way. I went to segregated schools. I never went to school with a black person until I was in ninth grade. And if you had asked me in eighth grade, I, I wouldn't have even known that it was possible. And yet all of a sudden it became possible. Almost anything can become possible once you open your mind to it, once you look at the evidence, once you look into your own heart, once you try to understand the arguments, the morals, look at the science, try to you know really realize who these creatures are, that they are, well, many of them, one of the reasons we began with chimpanzees is they are so extraordinarily like you and I, and that the things that we do to them, killing them, enslaving them, using them for research is not very far away from doing it to human beings. In fact, one of the reasons we do it is because they are so, so close to human beings. And you know, they and other magnificent animals like elephants or whales or orcas, you know, gorillas, they at, at, at least need to, to have people look at them in, in light of what we now know about them, throw out the old biases against them and say, yes, these beings you know, are entitled no longer to be seen as things who don't have the potential for rights, but to be seen as persons, at least for some purposes. We're not saying they have the right to vote or they have the right to go to high school. We're saying that they have these, what philosophers or lawyers might call negative rights. They have the right, you know, to be left alone. Well, Steve Wise, thank you very much for bringing this compelling conversation to Georgia College Connections. Thank you for inviting me. I, I've enjoyed it very much. Oh, the pleasure has been all mine.